0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Nexus Pro. Nexus Pro is an annual or monthly subscription where members get exclusive writing, podcasts, and invites to members-only Zoom gatherings. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexuslabs.online. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Nexus Podcast. Episode 35 is a conversation with Matt Golden, CEO of Recurve. This episode is a bit of a change of pace from our normal topics, but... It's an important one that all of you buildings folks need to be aware of. As Matt says, if you're not aware of the grid benefits of your projects, you're probably leaving money on the table. This is a deep dive into the past and present of energy efficiency, what's changed with COVID, grid flexibility, virtual power plants, grid interactive buildings, and much more, including more buzzwords. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus podcast episode 35. All right. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the Nexus podcast. Can you introduce yourself for everyone? So uh, my name is Matt Golden. I'm a founder of Recurve Software, uh,
1: actually Recurve Analytics, technically speaking. Uh, We provide tools for uh, utilities and also a whole range of companies out in the marketplace. We think of them as virtual power plant providers or often call them aggregators that are providing all sorts of services to all sorts of buildings, everything from solar to storage, to insulated attics, to IOT devices. We're totally agnostic. We think there's a lot of amazing stuff out there. Um, Stuff that produces grid benefits, that often doesn't get paid for it. So we end up with customers paying out of pocket. And We don't think that's right. We think the utility industry should pay their freight and that's better for everybody. So we provide—we actually sell mostly to utilities and provide a solution that helps them figure out which buildings are causing them the grid issues, where their peak's coming from, what end uses, and enables them to engage the market. Uh, Sometimes through traditional programs, but increasingly through what we call marketplace approaches, where they work with the companies out there that are building the business models and the financing solutions and the broad range of types of solutions and technologies we need to serve building owners uh, and a much more streamlined market-based approach that gets paid for the performance where we can actually track the impact that these projects are having. Uh, think of it as a new breed of really automated MNV on an hourly basis that lets us quantify that impact and also value what is that great impact? What is it worth in terms of transmission and distribution, uh, capacity energy, GHG impacts, And so that these aggregators can actually monetize the value of what they're providing, like a virtual power plant and make more money doing the right stuff and pass that savings back to customers. So they buy more of it and everybody wins. Um, So by way of background, uh, I started and kind of think like an aggregator and the audio version, you won't know what I'm pointing at, but I have my sustainable spaces, which was my original company now quite a while ago, shingle from our old offices, but uh, I'm a contractor at heart. So I was in the solar industry. Kind of a little silly now but got all fed up with rebates were coming and going and all and uh, and all that and got the bug on energy efficiency and said why are we putting panels on these buildings that are just bleeding energy out everywhere we should go fix the buildings first and so uh sustainable spaces was a full service building science based home performance company we also did some work in commercial and multifamily. um started out thinking like yeah we're gonna build software because i had a technology background and Make this automated streamlined thing. And next thing we know, I got five contractor licenses and 10 trucks and we're vertically integrated because the only way to make money, it turns out. Um, But really stymied, you know, uh, we work really hard to get the utilities to create programs to make us go faster and they just cause pain. It turns out if you get paid in advance based on a rebate, which is the traditional method, if you're in the business and you're doing good work and you have engineers and blower doors and infrared cameras, you make less money than the average guy who doesn't. If, you're getting, if everyone paid exactly the same amount, the way you make more money is you reduce your cost of goods sold and the lo- the bottom feeders, the folks producing the least value are actually getting the most profit.
0: Sure, it's not a good incentive structure.
1: No, it's not- um, conversely, you know, ACEEE and everybody's running around saying energy efficiency is the first fuel. We should do it. You know, it's the most important resource, but doesn't actually behave like one and it is certainly not valued like one. So it's not worth enough to be true. Um, and so that's the problem we're trying to solve. How do we move from that pay for Products in advance based on some average, regardless how it actually performs, pay that to the customer so that you know the market's not even making money. Do that channel, it's, uh, which misaligns the incentives further. Hmm. Um, and then the, the flip side to that as well is you know, and we call that pay for performance, which is that's actually the core of what we're going to talk about. If you're going to pay for performance, the starting point, really, the core of our business is you have to know what you're paying for. What is the product? What is energy efficiency? And if you haven't delved down this rabbit hole and this it's it's, combination, it's like an onion dropped to the bottom of a rabbit hole. So it sounds a little easier than it is because it's a derivative. It's a calculated value. So if you're going to bet on a calculated value, you got to know what that calculation is or you end up fighting over it. And that's pretty much all you end up doing. Um, so everyone's got to believe it's real, but you also got to put in a contract and generate an invoice and get paid and not end up just litigating how weather stations were chosen or things like that. Okay. And then the right, other side gonna... of it, well, I'll give you one more piece. This is the other okay. piece that we'll talk about, which is... When I was in the contracting business, we knew for sure that, uh, two in the afternoon was peak, right? Uh Solar was just solar. The duck curve hadn't really started. We had monthly meters, different world entirely. So in this transition to pay for performance, AMI smart meter data started coming online. All of a sudden I was like, holy crap, this duck curve thing is real. (laughs) It's not. It's actually happening and like, it's really going to happen guys. Uh So um, as we talk about this pivot from like efficiency as a nice to have do goodery to efficiency as a valuable resource, it's critical. And like the big leap in value is moving from an average of by month reduction, but let me give you all a secret. Utilities don't want to sell less of stuff, (laughs) but to actually quantifying when and where it's happening. So demand. And so everything we're doing now is an hourly basis and a locational basis. And that's really the turning point where, Instead of just writing white papers about how we're a resource, we start behaving like one and can actually migrate from like programs to the resource stack to be a procurable actual resource. And that's important because it's a lot more
0: valuable. Totally. And the reason I wanted to have you on, as a great intro, by the way. And the reason I wanted to have you on is because the, the Nexus audience, we're all thinking about things from behind the meter, but that's changing. We can't continue to think about it. We're like, going to connect
1: all that stuff. Exactly. Together.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we can't continue to as a as a nexus community, can't continue to think just behind the meter because things are starting to get a little bit convoluted at the nexus. And you're leaving money you
1: on the table when you do that. For that, you I mean, and that's your a customer. Great point.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. So before we dive into all that stuff because I want to unpack basically everything you just said for everyone. Um I want to ask you about that shingle you have behind you, which is, I saw a video on your LinkedIn profile of you at Ellen's home doing an energy audit. (laughs) You talk a a lot of time in crawl spaces. I've done (laughs) my dues. But yeah, I, you know, the context, it was, like, I think
1: it was like an Earth Day show or something, but uh, it was like a solid seven and a half minutes of my 15 minutes of fame, because okay. I did I did get, rec- not because like I did such a great job auditing her house, but it was Ellen's house. So like diehard Ellen fans know that episode or knew that episode. So I would, I would actually get people being like, you're that guy. But it, again, it wasn't because they were super excited about energy efficiency. Yeah. But yeah, it was pretty fun. And uh, I don't know, she was nice enough to me. I don't know, whatever everybody says. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. You were like trying to work in like the nerdy energy efficiency terms, like phantom loads, to and Alan's just trying to make jokes. So it was. It was he did fun tell me, fun. and actually,
1: some people even this all this like stuff that's been going on. I got the instructions like, you don't have to try to be funny, and I was like, thank you. Thank
0: you. <laughs> Alan's got that. has got that piece. Going. I got one or two little ones in there, but <laughs> I'll let the it other be. thing. The other thing I wanted to tell you is that you're the second Georgetown alum that's been on the podcast. I don't know if you know Logan Soya from uh, Aquacore, but I
1: know, but I should because uh, there is like a little G Town cleantech crew.
0: Yeah, totally. I can send you an intro. Well, so that was a great intro into Recurve. Um, so let's dive into some of that stuff you just introduced us. So I want to give you my background a little bit because I think it'll help you kind of take us off uh, into this next phase of the conversation. So. I've done a lot in like the what you just described as kind of like the old way to do energy efficiency. So applying for incentives, submitting calculations to incentive programs, helping my clients, which are building owners. Was it awesome? Uh, it was not awesome. No, yeah. it was actually not fun at all. I, I learned how to get kind of game the system and and figure out how to build energy models really quickly to kind of like prove something that was happening, right? So I think a lot of people are kind of familiar with that old world, especially mechanical engineers that have been doing energy management sort of projects for a while, yep. retro commissioning, commissioning, that, that type of thing. Um, can you kind of talk about like the old world and then the, the new world that we're coming into? So the most important thing is it's not like one or the other, it's about, you still
1: have to like engineer a good solution that works, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But the way we think about it is we also think about behind the meter, right? And we wanna be open and, and, and to let the diversity of solutions and engineering and stuff that goes on behind the meter do its thing and hold it accountable to those outcomes, but not mm-hmm. micromanage it. And that's really the difference. I mean, you know, energy models make a lot of sense for certain types of projects. You should do them if it helps, right? Like whatever engineering that you do, product selection, implementation, training, like instead of prescribing all of that, and micromanaging and double-checking it because there's no accountability to the results, right? And so you, you put yourself in like the old world and the old world, I put air, those are air quotes for the listeners. Hmm. Um, it's not old at all. It's like mostly still what we do, almost yeah. everywhere. Most utilities
0: um, are still- the
1: gonna, if, I'm, if you're gonna submit a bunch of paperwork and a super complicated energy model that like I can't even begin to understand. And then I'm gonna pay a bunch of money based on that. Mm-hmm. And then like, if I'm in the utility, like that's, a, what if that didn't work? And so they don't really have a choice, right? How else? How else do I make sure you're not trying to screw me? And you call it gaming? I don't even think it was gaming. Like you give me crazy rules, you pay me the wrong stuff. Like I'm not gonna do it. You know, that's like yeah. your job. Yeah, um, exactly. And so there's a fundamental mistrust because everyone does overestimate because like you're paid to do that at the end of the day. In their shoes, what else are they gonna do? Like give me everything, and I'm gonna try to make sense of this bespoke nightmare you've given me. And yeah, and if I just micromanage every single thing you do, maybe it'll work which of course it doesn't because you either go out of business or you game the system and get around them because you're, you know, information and asymmetry here. So engineering and good quality work doesn't go away at all. In fact, good quality energy models, engineering and high quality work now becomes a source of profit in this model because you're not paying. But the trade is you become accountable that it actually has to work to get paid, Hmm. right? That's the trade-off. But you're trading that for all the bullshit. Okay. So the basis of the model is like, we have standardized M&V, especially the smart meter data. We've agreed to how it's tracked. We can measure how these things are doing transparently, lightly. Um, and then you'll get agreed to pay for your, what we call pay for performance, which is we send flexibly purchase agreements, which is, you know, you're an aggregator. What do we call an aggregator? Company yeah, that's doing- What do you so mean by this. aggregator? Yeah, it's a company that's doing stuff with customers. Like okay. if you can get customers to agree to do whatever you're doing and assign this value to you. You can be a finance company, a, co- a large contractor, you know, lighting as a service company, you just got a phone with one of them, Pace uh, provider, uh, it could be Ohm Connect. You could be Google Like, Yeah,
0: you know? so an yeah. aggregator is gonna charge the customer to do something and then they're gonna apply for these incentives or rebates on behalf of their customer, which is the building. We like account. to call them
1: performance payments because something about in- okay. incentives and rebates sounds like they're giving you something for free. You're actually getting paid for something you're delivering that's valuable. Um, and okay. so I think this is like two things, how you deliver your services to your customers is your business. And they're going to buy it based on benefits they receive, right? More bills, often comfort, better lights that make their products look better, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And we want to just leave that to be your business between you and your customer and how you get paid for that. Do they give you cash money? Do they do a lease? Do they have an energy service agreement? Your business, that's the customer's cash flow. Got it. We're talking about a tertiary cash flow that says, you know, you've actually done lighting in 350 homes on a part of the grid that has a peak problem, right? Or more accurately, how about this? I mean, it's a real peak problem. Actually, you know, we have a peak problem and our blackouts in August happened, you know, at 7 p.m. Or, you know, actually between 5 and 8, right? Mm -hmm. And we have this coincidental HVAC peak with like a commercial peak. And if you, so you go and put air conditioners in and you insulate attics you're producing benefits that accrue not to your customer but to the utility because they don't have to buy $1,400 megawatt hours, right? Or as we install electric vehicles and all this stuff, all of a sudden we're really stressing our distribution network. They can spend millions of dollars on a new distribution system or potentially they can reduce load and not have to. That's a mutual benefit. So in addition to that customer benefit, right? We're creating a tertiary cash flow. that's the virtual power plant that says, you as an aggregator now can get paid for the virtual power plant you're creating the transmission and distribution value, the capacity, the energy, the GHGs, the stuff that doesn't accrue to your customer. We don't want them paying with their credit card for the full freight, and then you shouldn't be giving that to PG&E or ConEd or ComEd or whoever. But you should get paid for that. And so that's what this model is. And it's setting up that grid value so that as an aggregator, you go out and do your work and you're also building power plant, getting paid for it. And you can take that cash flow. We're about all about aligning incentives, right? And you can figure out what you're going to do with it are you going to buy down your customer costs like a rebate are you going to reduce their interest rate are you going to do better marketing huh. what are you going to do okay. uh, in a competitive market because we don't pick winners right and that's the thing that's actually what keeps everybody honest right is that mm-hmm. we're not going to run an rfp and be like you win you're it you're the monopoly which is also the fundamental flaw in the traditional system right um, and so go forth and so what that produces is a, a model that says as an aggregator If you can figure out how to sell your product to a customer in a way that they value, that simultaneously delivers the, and you've kind of value engineer, right? It's not, how do I deliver the best benefit to the customer and maximize the grid benefits and the GHG reductions? And if you do that right, you make more money, your customer gets a better deal and we get a stable, clean grid. That's the plan.
0: Got it. So just thinking about the kind of the old way to do it, um, I'm still kind of like, old way, new way. Maybe that's not the right way to think about it because Uh, (laughs) we're in a transition, right? So before the transition, we're stuck in the middle. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. We're in the middle of purgatory. The old way was I'm going to do an energy efficiency project. I'm going to upgrade something. Right. And part of that is going to be this incentive, this free, (laughs) this incentive or rebate check. So what's the new model? And I, I think I know it. I'll just try to, you tell me if I'm wrong. So now I'm going to do that same project, and I'm going to get payments on the back end for the actual calculated energy savings at the meter, or demand the change in demand profile at the meter. And so your software kind of sits there and says, "This is that number." That's right. Uh,
1: okay. And what you do with that money? So you just created a cash flow. So financing cash flows is called infrastructure investing. Yep. Project that's project finance, right? Not financing projects with a credit card. So you're actually, so you have this cash flow you're creating that in a portfolio is incredibly stable and consistent that you can finance and bring forward. And then again, your customer doesn't even really necessarily have to know it's there ultimately, but
0: you figure out how to use that cash flow to Got it.
1: grow your business and get more customers.
0: Okay. So if I'm an aggregator, I'm just thinking about this totally different now. Instead of being like a, in the past, I was like, you could call what I've done an aggregator, and I was like a trade ally in the local utility program. So what would be the new model for that with this setup?
1: So again, we're, you would get a flexibility purchase agreement, which gives you access to these markets. You go about your business, you figure out how to sell it to your customers, you enroll those projects, you get paid for their performance over time. Okay. That's basically it. And so we're, our role on that is we are not an aggregator ever. That would be a conflict of interest. So. Yeah. So we've spent the last decade coming out of sustainable spaces trying to figure out how to solve this problem. And starting with the fact that you can't, this shit is not real and you can't pay for performance for sure if you don't have an agreement on what it is in the first place. And the mm-hmm. problem is a bit of a joke, but it's true. You take IPMVP option C or evaluation methods, anybody, and you there's, there's flaws in it to begin with. But the real problem is, if you ask five engineers to give you the savings on the same 50 buildings, you're going to get 17 answers. And the punchline is they're all right because right. we haven't agreed to anything. Okay. And it's really profound. There's hundreds and hundreds of choices that would blow your mind and I'd have to explain on binning methods and you know, balance point temperature, but a big okay. one. So I didn't put a heat pump on my own house, right? And if you use the nearest weather station, you end up with Napa, I'm in Marin. Okay. It's close to me, but it's yeah. hot.
0: My winter time savings
1: are 15%.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you pick the closest in, weather, in climate zone, which is what the methods we deploy use, You get SFO, which is 1.2 miles away, San Francisco airport, further away than Napa, and I say 23%. Okay. Right. That's just one choice. Yeah, who's right? So, you know, we spent the last decade building open source methods through like excruciating public processes, mostly funded by folks like the PUC and the CEC and DOE and those and utility and all friends. But these are open, they're all online still, like ongoing actually, to apply a new idea, which is this is math. We have lots of data. Let's get everyone together and go through all of these little decisions and test all of the options anybody can come up with publicly against real data and agree how we're going to do it. And not perpetuity. There's a process we can get better, but we need a consistent standard. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a time in the U.S. when every state had a different definition for a bushel of corn which is one of the reasons why weights and measures is in the US constitution. You can't trade interstate if you don't have, now we have one definition. You can't trade this shit if it's different everybody you ask. Um, and so we built what are called the CalTrack methods, okay, which is a set of methods, actually the hourly methods come from, cause we looked at all the existing approaches we could find uh, something called a time of week temperature model. This is how we create a baseline, which came from LBL in the first place, but we improved it considerably in the process cause we opened it up and used real data to test it. Okay. Um, which generates an hourly baseline condition for every building. It looks at every month of the year, generates temperature bins for that month, for that building, and then generates a regression model that correlates how the building operates in closed and open states, uh, uses energy relative to weather. Highly predictive, it turns out, surprisingly predictive. Okay. Um, in a very standard way that you can verify. And we call those, sta- well, being able to s- verify and standardize, we call a revenue grade calculation. You can okay. put it in a contract. We can prove we followed it, okay. right? So those methods and that code are open source. The open meter code, which is what runs a CalTrack method, is part of is now in the Linux Foundation. So we're the primary operators, but we don't own it. Lots of people use it. It's well documented. Uh, We implement it. We implement it at scale, and that's what we do particularly well. How do you take this code and implement it in a way that you can audit, and how do you do it so that you can measure every meter on the grid every single night, you know, on a thousand servers? That's what we do.
0: Okay. So what does this mean for all of us uh, certified measurement and verification professionals out there that have spent years in our spreadsheets uh, um, doing yeah, it so in our own be some way?
1: way. <laughs> we're in a <gonna> transition. That's <laughs> okay. math. You okay. can't yep. parallelize computing in a spreadsheet. Yeah. But there's still a lot of stuff that's not exactly math especially on individual assets. So we at the portfolio level utilize something called the law of large numbers to wash out most NREs, non-routine events, things like that. If you want to do math on individual buildings and you want to be like an energy services agreement, you have to be right on that building. And something changes fundamentally in that building. Then you have to do stuff that's not actually that much math, which is make an adjustment and use an energy model and figure out what do we think happened and give everyone it's a con we, I think of that as a change to a contract actually Mm -hmm. and acknowledging what it is. and so it's, so the core like routine calculations, if it's routine, we're gonna beat you every day. Got by it. definition, right? <laughs> um, and we're gonna do a better job of it too. But there's all the non-routine stuff, which is a different story. Though as you get it, but again, as you get into portfolios, we can wash most of that non-routine stuff out because some people buy hot tubs and some people you know, have their kids go to school and some buildings Google moves into and some buildings goes vacant and like it washes out in a very predictable way. Got it. Okay. Um, but yeah, don't compete with real software in the cloud to do math if you're doing it on a spreadsheet or an R <laughs> on a local server. Um, and that's, you know, some of the calculations we're doing would take 14 months on normal servers, okay. we run them on 10,000 at a time. Got it.
0: Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together, and they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexislabs.online. All right, back to the interview. All right, so. Well, real quick, I wanted to ask you about, like, there's a lot of companies out there, especially on the building software, analytics software side, that have their own ways of doing these calculations. So what would be the benefit of kind of standardizing on these more more open methods that you guys are sort of promoting out there?
1: Because you're not allowed to measure yourself and get paid on your own measurements. (laughs) like, there's always like, so back away from our shit for a minute. Like, I learned this stuff. Because after doing recurve, I did a bunch of other things, including spent a bunch of time during early solar securitizations in that process. And what we're bringing to the table is we're like, oh, you're so innovative. I'm like, not innovative. Like, we're trying to copy how this shit actually gets done totally. in the real world. And the standardizing of V, like, I like that kind of stuff. I'm a bit of a nerd, but I don't actually care. We just need a consistent weights and measures. Like, and then so it has to be good too, because we have to, the you know, grid people have to believe it's real and we got to know it's real, but like, in terms of like making this all happen, the important thing is it's consistent and replicable and definable, you put it in a contract. So you just can't do it, especially if, if like you were honest about how sensitive these calculations are. And I just mean that in a general sense, like there's always a third party, like an asset class is underwriting criteria with documentation and third party verification all the time, right? right. You, whether it's your appraiser behind your mortgage or your FICO score behind your credit score, you don't get to be like, no, trust me, I am credit worthy. doesn't carry weight. Yeah. So I would just say like all these companies who say like, we're going to go implement your work, measure it, and you're going to pay us based on what we said happened. That's part of why we can't scale. And like the building owners are like, well, what? And so and it's a terrible business anyways. I don't really like, we can do it at scale, but like, why do you want to be an M&V? It just makes you less credible. And again, the more you know about M&V, and I think your audience does in these hundreds and hundreds of little decisions. And I would encourage people to go to the caltrack.org website and look at, the, look at the actual technical requirements and ask how many of them you've even heard of? How many of these decisions do you even know exist? Most people that run the code don't even know what's going on behind the code, right? It's a black box. So we're the anti-black box. Everything we, every method we use and all the code we run is open to all parties. Anybody can run it. These engineers can absolutely run it. These companies who are doing this can just literally pick it up and use it. And then we can verify it because you still actually, in implementation, it's so sensitive, you just shouldn't. It's a conflict of interest flat out. And it's a so, big barrier in an industry that we just need to leap over. It's holding yeah. us back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As someone who's done those calculations on the side of the ESCO, Uh, it's just, it's, it's very difficult to explain how that's trust, trust. I can give you any
1: number you want. You'll never know why. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I've also, so I've been in a situation where I've been the M and V person, right. Doing the calculations to show the savings. Uh, I've also been in a situation where I've had a black box provider tried to get me to uh, give my rubber stamp on their savings calculations. And I've tried to reproduce them. And I've always been in this like, you can't well, and the box
1: itself is worthless. Like we've looked at like energy models, these boxes, you can test them in a lab all day long, but how mm-hmm. do you know how they were actually used? Is like it doesn't even it doesn't matter what it does in a lab when they're highly motivated. You can be super accurate in a lab and we've seen this. So like we looked at like on the building modeling side, which is a similar problem. Mm-hmm. We oh at, yeah. That's where a lot of this came from. was like, and on my recurve, we built energy modeling software. And so we, we took all these modeling tools. We said, well, well, how do we let them in the market? We're gonna let people pick their tool. So we created this like empirical test. Let's test all these. We'll have the providers of the software prove it works well. Here's a bunch of buildings, model it. We'll look at actuals. Hey, here's a whole bunch of software that in the lab were great. They were very motivated to use it well, right? Mm-hmm. In practice, the, we only delivered 30% of predicted results using the same software that could totally perform in a lab. Wow. Why? I don't know, lots of reasons actually. Yeah. Like it's super freaking hard to use the software. People didn't give a shit. The people who are using it were just like, how quickly can I get a rebate? And the more more savings their model showed, the bigger
0: the rebate. So like, what are you going to get? Crappy models with high savings. So this matches up with another one of the patterns that shows up on this podcast over and over again, which is there are so many people in the buildings industry that are doing the same thing in different ways, basically solving the problem, same problem in different ways in different silos, and building owners are paying for each each one to do it all differently across the whole entire industry. This is just one example. Yeah,
1: it, we are heavily, there's way too much overhead, which is a massive drag on our scalability. And so like one challenge is there's a lot of people that make money in what we consider fat. Totally. However, that's holding everybody back. So everyone's like, no, don't take my fat away. I need this fat to live. We want to go, go the other way and say, let's go build muscle. And if we build muscle, everybody makes way more money, and we're going to scale. And there's still like, when I talk about like, you know, are you an IP MVP certified? You know, there's shit tons of work out there. Like, but yeah. instead of like being six percent overhead on a small project in the stack, like let's make it really efficient and let's go get sixty more projects instead of that exactly. one, right? And because like we're the drag is insane, the complexity exactly. is crazy.
0: This gives me a justification for what I did last month, which is let my uh, CMVP lapse. Uh, so
1: <laughs> we use, we are completely IP MVP compliant.
0: Well, yeah, but I, I'm going to so say could anybody,
1: that's the problem. We're like, yeah, we're exactly. means nothing right. Like, yep. You guys handle it. General principle. People are always like, Oh, we use IP MVP. And like that, what, you know, it doesn't mean a whole
0: lot. It's
1: like four general principles.
0: Totally. Uh, all right. So let's talk about a couple of these concepts that are enabled by hourly data. Like you said, I just want to make sure I understand some of these terms. So you mentioned Caltrack. Um, is that the same thing as Open EE Meter? Is that?
1: Well, there's a weird history there about how it came about. But Caltrack are methods. That uh, Caltrack you go know, Caltrack, says like, here's how we're going to do it. You go to okay. GitHub. Here's all the research. Blah, blah blah. But here's it defines a set of methods and a technical reason why. Okay. And then Open EE Meter which uh, got, actually got split out because people who had black boxes were super pissed that we were building open okay. method code. And so like politically we had to separate the two, never okay. really meant to be. But it was because we got attacked by all these people being like, you can't, you know, open source is gonna kill innovation, which is total baloney. <laughs> So, OpenE Meter and Caltrack, Caltrack are the methods, but you can have methods up the wazoo. How do you know if they were followed? And like rounding matters, you know, order of operations matters. So, OpenE Meter is the open source, and what that means is anybody can use it for any purpose without restriction. In the Linux Foundation implementation of those Caltrack. I see. Okay. Um, and that's actually one of really three major tools that we use. And it's actually, by the way, this is really important. The real problem with M and V is nobody can do it anymore. Especially in commercial. Period. Okay. Why not? COVID. Okay. Yeah. All energy methods, except for what I'm about to describe, no longer work. Period. And so the problem being is that, and it, by the way, it doesn't matter. Deem savings from like utility sense based on a work paper from two years ago, useless. Yeah. Uh, option C based on an energy model of last year doesn't, doesn't make sense. Yep. An energy model in general for any purpose. What assumptions are you going to use? Right. How would I verify those assumptions? You're just guessing. That's the that, that is a major issue we got to confront. That these things are completely screwed and useless right now. All you measure is COVID. And the problem is, is that there's especially in commercial when we look across NACE codes, categories of buildings, like you know, uh, grocery is down by four percent, but thirty percent are up. Some of them up a lot because like you know maybe they're open at six a.m. now to let you know people that have. Community issues in. Um, Some are closed. Um, Beauty salons are down by 75%. So very complicated. Uh, And they're all recovering at different rates, right? Like everyone in Marin, everyone's recovering. Some buildings are opening, some aren't. Depends what's in them. Very hard to tell. Oh shit, we have a stay-at-home owner again. Everyone's going down again.
0: Right. The
1: the, the M&B community is like, oh, well, you know, we have our NRA handbook, which is another 150 pages of stuff you might want to do. And they're like, we'll just use that. You know, we just apply that. And like, honestly, if you had an army, if you could camp out an engineer in every lobby, I don't think you can do it.
0: Yeah, if, if an engineer was just adjusting there, making adjustments every time something changed it. Changed. Too wacky, too crazy. Right. So you say, well, what are you talking about? Because you just described CalTrack is I-
1: Option P- C IP MVP, which it is, uh-huh. so we now have to, we always needed to, but now we have to have a two-step process. Okay. The second step is to, and this is a, more concerning for everybody, Accuracy in M&V on individual building is no longer possible, flat out. However, what we are able to do is provide revenue grade, what we call uh, settlement quality numbers on a portfolio or a population. And we do that by using something called the grid meter. And uh, this is, we've been working on automating population comparison groups and the tools to get access to that data, which I'll describe next for the last few years. So beginning of the summer, I had some friends at DOE. They've been funding a lot of our work. And I was like, holy crap, this is an emergency. Nobody can do M&B anymore. We have some ideas on how to do it. So they, they were good enough to fund us. We worked with a research partner, a CCA in California called MCE. So we had use of all their data, smart meter data. Yeah. And we generated a big working group of like top evaluation thinkers and whatnot. And we said, all right, we know how to do this. We're, we're going to use these methods we developed to do comparison groups. And we'll be able to normalize for, uh, for COVID. Mm-hmm. So we got going in. Nothing worked. Nothing even came close to working, okay. nothing worked. We couldn't come up with any way to make it work. We tried this, we tried that, we tried simple, we said complicated, let's match it. You know let's match each individual customer to a portfolio other, But ah, it doesn't work, didn't work. Um, I was a little worried it was not ever gonna work, but luckily in the middle, not really luck, I got a really smart group of people. Um, we came up with a different approach, a really fundamentally different approach. Well, some of the words are not fundamentally different, but the approach is quite different, which is, so we've created a, in the grid middle a set of methods and code all open source, same thing, that mm-hmm. allows us to look at a treated population and create something called a stratified sample, which is not a new idea in and of itself, except for how we're doing it. So a stratified sample is like a political poll, right? You don't just pull you gotta, you gotta have a sample that represents your voters. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 year olds don't vote this, you know, maybe at the same rate as, as 60 year olds. Yeah. And so what we do is we run the e meter on every single meter on the grid, treated and untreated customers. And the difference we have is we know who our voters are; they're the treated customers. Okay. And then we run because we have large-scale computing behind
0: us. And you mean treated customers in terms of? So we look at the
1: company where we have projects, right? We're saying we're projects a comparison in group that is like those folks, so that we can deal with things like COVID, Got or it. you know, it's a peak event, and they send out you know, there's radio ads, or electric cars are happening, or you know, the economy changed. This is all stuff that doesn't get picked up in M and V, and it yeah. can be profound, and it's increasingly profound with the grid transition going on and electrification and like, can't just be adjusted away. Totally. So we look at those customers that actually got the retrofit done. We look across these 150 key metrics, like percent cooling all this, these derivatives that CalTrack spits out about these be- customers. And then we look at the population and we run a process. You know, you've heard, you've heard of like 40 chest. Mm-hmm. That's a joke actually. but the thing, 4D chess, like something's really complicated, 4D chess, anyway, this is 5D stratification. Where I we're thought I said 4D at, chess,
0: 4D 4, chess, 4D. got it, okay, cool.
1: So we'll look across in like, in an automated way, look at every binning combination and also every combination of these 150 potential metrics in the population to generate a comparison group that matches that, con- that control group or the treaty group, mm-hmm. and it's crazy predictive. Um, okay. You know, we actually thought we thought we'd screwed up at the beginning because we when we first got the first results out because it was a lot of work to be able to do it in the first place, a lot of coding. We're kind of coming up. Um, The comparison group is so close to the treaty group that we thought we'd screwed up because we couldn't see the difference until we zoomed in. Uh Um, And so what we do is we run that comparison group, uh, and then we difference the differences. So we say, all right, you changed 17, percent but the general population increased by 2. percent You difference those, and you get the net impact, net of the population changes that are occurring, net it. of COVID. Okay, and it works perfect, and like it works amazingly well through COVID. In commercial, you do have to know NACE code because you can't be comparing beauty salons and grocery stores. Okay. Um, but re- if you do with that one key thing, which um, we always know, because you can buy that info if you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, now we can do M and B.
0: Um, The So NACE code is like what type of building it is. It's basically Mm -hmm. what type of space. Exactly. Um, And then we use something called,
1: also funded by DOE, something called energy differential privacy, which is a privacy technique that Google uses on location data. It's actually been used in the the U.S. Census Bureau, but it's never been used in energy, which is a method to inject random noise into data sets that allows us to use population data and
0: obscure it in such a way that it's not a privacy violation. Got it. So if I'm a nail salon and I was supposed to shut down and I didn't, um, you can't, you know, out me basically. From yeah, code. Okay. right.
1: So we're okay. using samples. So like these are real customers, but there's no way to know who they are. And beyond okay. that, there's no way, way to know what is true and what is actually just noise we're injecting. Okay. Um, Very cool. It's how to break that stuff free. This is the excuse they have for not letting us use it, right? Privacy. Yeah. Consulting. Yeah. So anyways, that is a freaking complicated way to say that we, well, one is question MNV right now. People are not talking about this because it's an existential problem, and no one wants to talk about it.
0: I've put it in the newsletter a few times. We'll put it. I, I've been asking this question since about April because when I was at NREL, a couple of our projects got really derailed by the fact that we couldn't we couldn't measure before and after effects of the software we we're testing and piloting. So, yeah, I'll, I'll actually
1: yeah, so there are P 4 P programs running this traditional market like they like site based and like it's freaking nuts. So talking about that original point of like people measuring themselves right through COVID like. We have companies who are retrofitting buildings, measuring their own shit, trying to make all these adjustments, and then someone's going to pay them directly for that.
0: Yeah, especially when it's in their benefit that. There blows my to mind. Be no people
1: it blows my mind. It blows. I, I, I find it just so strange that nobody else, that so many people don't seem to find that this is a problem.
0: Oh, I yeah, I, I'm hundred percent with you, and a lot of people have responded like, I, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. So, what, what do you think we are going to do from? So like a single building and if I have a customer and they're an office building and we did say a performance contract two years ago, what am I doing right now? What, like, what are we doing to say what the savings were? So in that case, I think you have to stipulate to some degree. You're kind of you just have to,
1: yeah. I mean, again, or you, again, I'm highly skeptical. If you take Evo's NRE recipe book of things you can do that like you, so you can come up with something, but really this is a contract, not math. So what you really need to do is go to the customer and agree to a contract change. that says like, shit, COVID, maybe we'll use last year's and stipulate, or here are the 16 adjustments we're going to make, but there's no, I mean, there's no way to verify it. Yeah. No, it's just, and so, and it's law of diminishing returns and it's another onion in a rabbit hole. It gets worse (laughs) and worse and worse as you dig into it. Um, But at a different level, the way, and this is, this is how we should be doing it anyways, is customers, one of the reasons they don't tend to buy ESCO agreements, except for like, MUSH, you know, municipal utilities, schools and hospitals, and fed, uh-huh. federal. Um, this is freaking complicated. No one actually believes it. So, yeah. you know, I see a big trend, and I think we need to be looking at this as, like, cold beer and warm showers and look at how risk is managed in, like, every other industry. And so, again, there, and there are these energy services models, like the MESA model, the Managed Energy Service Agreement, where instead of, like, trying to be perfect on each building and treating on each and every asset you get a portfolio and you can buy insurance for that portfolio. And you say, you know what, we're going to, you know, your bill was 1200 last year. It's going to be 800 this year. You're just going to pay me and I'm going to win and I'm going to win some and lose some across my portfolio. Yep. Sometimes that 1200 bill will end up being $1,300. Sometimes it'll be $600, but in a very consistent way and give the customer something very simple and manage the risk like an adult. Let's take it to market. Risk is good. Risk is good. If it's manageable, individual buildings are not risk. It's uncertainty.
0: Hmm.
1: but you package that all up into a building, right? So like, here's the, yeah. I'm giving you a car loan, right? I would say, okay, yeah. like, hey, score scores a 700 up have a 6% default rate. If I was doing that on one customer and they lost their job and default, I'm screwed. Right. If you do that across a thousand customers, you're going to get 6%. Totally. So that's how risk is managed everywhere else. And contrary to popular belief, energy efficiency works the same way. And with the exception of like the most bespoke applications, the, Industrial buildings, the large scale commercial buildings where you gotta get a bit fancier because they're one offs. Um, it works really well in resi for sure, small business, no problem. Office buildings, retail, groceries, food services, much more predictable. We, wa- we wave our hands at this that everything's a bespoke nightmare and it's not in our opinion. Um, and often we, we generally know in advance, by the way, who is a bespoke nightmare. And so the other thing is like, instead of building our whole industry around the 6% outliers that are really, really hard, let's build everything around the 94% that are down the middle and then decide what we do with the other 6%. And that's our approach. Right? There are companies like we will look at buildings and like, if we can't model the baseline, they have, I don't know. I just, this is an actual example. I was just looking through it. And I'm like, why is this one so wacky? And it was, a uh, it was it, in the bottom floor was like one of those art studio things where you can like paint dishes. And so it was like, <laughs> and we can't predict kilns. Right. So if it's worth it, so the question then is what do you do? So. This is a small enough asset, stipulate it. Who cares? It's like 1% of the portfolio. Or you could go in and hire an engineer to like figure out when they run their killing or make an adjustment. If it's big enough, it's just not big enough to bother. Like we'll wash it out. Doesn't matter. Totally. Right? Okay. But that's a that's a business decision, not an M and V decision.
0: Got it. Okay. So I think a lot of what you described so far is sort of pinned on our sort of newfound hourly data, right? Um and this hasn't gone a whole all the way across the world yet. Like, not every building has hourly data yet. But a lot of this sort of depends on. The actually, this, data so
1: Caltrans has two sets of met- well, three sets of methods. Okay. Our uh, monthly, daily, and hourly.
0: Okay, so you can um, do, it, do it if you just have utility. I have no.
1: We well. rarely ever touch daily because if you have daily, you generally have hourly. Yeah, <laughs> it, exactly. It, and it went that way. We started with monthly because we didn't have hourly, and then anyway. Okay. Um. So, uh, we run monthly models are standardized, totally consistent. I mean, essentially prism on, you know, if you know the prism model, like, and for just baseload heating, okay. uh, it's not rocket science, but doing it consistently did take three years. Cause even though like the basic heating cooling baseload model is mm-hmm. not rocket science and construct with monthly data, squeezing out all the details and all the data cleaning rules and everything was, is hard. And it sits on top. That's the same set of rules that both sit on. So you can okay. get a consistent answer, but you can't fix the grid with that. Um, and there's always more uncertainty because you're fitting to 12 data points
0: Right, it's tough. And, there's, and there's also
1: just inherent biases. Uh, it tends to underestimate certain shoulder months and overestimate other periods. And like, those are inherent biases every time you do a monthly model that just baked in.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then on the, on the other side of things, doing the traditional way with hourly data is also really difficult. It's just like too much. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's just too much.
1: So what everyone's almost everyone says that says they he's doing interval with traditional data, what they're actually doing is adding it up to month and then running traditional
0: models. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. So yeah, the time of week temperature model is really a DR model. We're using it to unify E and DR, like we don't care. We can actually tell the difference between long-term changes and short-term responses within the same signal. Um, okay. We think of what we're doing as a unified field theory. We don't care what it is. We care what did it do and what's it worth. And what's it worth as a function of what you're responding to. Is it a market signal from the KISO because we're having a blackout mm-hmm. or is it fighting the duck curve every single day? Blackout's worth a lot more, but there's not much of that. Fighting the duck curve every day is worth less, but worth a lot, but a lot of it.
0: Let's talk about that. So l- let's kind of start high level for people like like we talked about before we hit record. If I'm a building owner or I serve building owners, why should I care about demand flexibility? Why should I care about everything you just said about the duck curve and the time of day and things like that? Can you can you just like maybe- Well, we should all care because
1: we're trying to fight climate change and Carbonize. put that aside because nobody does this shit because of polar bears in my experience you got to write a big check yeah so i've had crazy environmentalists scoff at the big check when it comes down to it right so money you're leaving money on the table that's why you care so at a fundamental level your customers investing in all this stuff in their building that could be potentially doing harm or good actually to the grid and ghgs and you know the thing we're fighting is that and, the, and the, really the reason to do this at a macro level is that as we decarbonize a grid as we bring on renewables um, you might have noticed the sun rising and setting every day right <laughs> and, the, and so you end up with like the supply of generation not being coincidental with our peak which most it varies a lot but in california it's that seven to nine PM window it's pretty common that you get like a late afternoon coincidental peak you know resi and commercial at the same time so the big idea and what makes this valuable is that shifting load around is the new game in town, right? We have to figure out how to use the clean energy we're generating at the times when it's most, when otherwise we'd be buying really expensive, dirty stuff. So, you know, obviously, we think about storage and EVs and all that. We do too, actually. We think what's it's behind the meter, it's the same thing. Um, But there's also really simple other valuable stuff, right? Like if you've got a air conditioner and no attic insulation, there's no such thing as a flat reduction that will produce really valuable load shape impacts during the peak window, very reliably. It's not, it's not dispatchable, but it's valuable, right? There really isn't such a thing as a flat, nothing, right? Refrigerators can be turned off. Opicodec does this, right? Like you can return, a, you can turn off refrigerator for two hours, no problem, right? It's not flat. So like, you know, a new refrigerator will be kind of a flat reduction, but you can also control the damn thing, right? Okay. Okay. So, So the opportunity is to help solve that problem, which is a very expensive problem, which means, and there's not enough of any of the storage and EVs and all this crap that's mostly aspirational anyways, not even close to enough of it. And the demand is going up, 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 which means value goes up with it because there's not enough supply. Okay. So why? Because if you're not doing it, you're leaving money on the table, potentially really big money. Why should your customer use their creditor asset value to buy a set of benefits that goes to a utility? for profit utility in most cases. So the opportunity is to value that correctly so that you can reduce the cost to the customer, make more money, scale your business. And then the policy objective is that we want to give you a reason to do that. One of our aggregators does refrigeration controls and they do utility programs right, left and center, but they're all based on averages. And so showing them the avoided cost in California, which is what drives our when savings are valuable, you know, even though they're in all these utility programs, no one ever asked them to reduce peak didn't matter. Everyone's paid on averages. Right. So they're like, well, wait a minute, you're telling me if we just move our compressors as much out of those three hours in the summer, that's worth a lot. Yes. It's worth a lot. And so, you know, what I sometimes, and I don't mean this in a those negative up, but this is like the moral compass to our industry, right? Like we're totally fixated on customer benefits and, and savings. And in order to pivot, so we are also considering grid benefits and GHGs we need to make them valuable. And that's just how we do it. And like what we end up with and why this is great policy is that, Now the market, you know, everybody that's touching buildings and, you know, there's all the cool people doing work out there today, but I also want to engage, you know, United Technologies and all the big folks that control huge loads that like will never screw around with the utility program. I mean, you're in the virtual power plant business
0: now, and
1: you're going to make more money and get more customers if you can figure out how to also deliver on grid benefits and GHG reductions, right?
0: Got it. And so what about the buildings out there that don't have the incentives to, Take advantage of those so that they have they have rates that are either flat or they the
1: rates are a conundrum.
0: Day. Yeah,
1: rates are always a laggard. They never express the true grid value. You have okay. all sorts of like edge case equity issues that are real. Mm-hmm. And if a customer is getting savings on their bills, they end up with a savings cash flow, which largely they have to pay with their credit card. Um, so we think there's moral hazard in focusing entirely on bills. Now you know reasonable time of use rates is a good thing, but and also just the complexity like. Even large buildings don't have people like you, you. Push this all into bills. You're making everybody an energy trader. That's what you're doing. And you know, people okay. are like you look at the retailers, right? Like you know, everyone's like, oh, they're on the market. They're like they hedge their they're hedged up to their eyeballs, and customers can't hedge, right? So, so, okay,
0: so, so if I'm doing a project, this is, just
1: we finish up. So this is a wholesale signal, right? Okay. This is a signal between okay. the utility and the aggregator. Okay, right? where you can manage that risk and and not retail rates.
0: I see. Okay. So so right now today, if I go do a demand flexibility project, the utility for the most part is seeing the benefit of that, unless there's some way for me to capture that value, right? And so what you're saying is as an aggregator, I can capture that value and then I can figure out how to provide that in the right way to my customers, which are the building owners.
1: Right. And it aligns the incentives to the whole system. Now you got a reason to invest in this stuff. It allows you to finance it properly, like an integrated asset, manage the risk. Um, I see. And to be honest, for all the M&B reasons we just described, we're never sure what the hell's happening on individual assets, right? Right, right. <laughs> you're, right. You're, you're, and so the signal ends up being really messy to the customer anyways, like you saved energy. And like, no, my kid went to college. You didn't save energy, I had a baby, right? Like <laughs> this is not shit the customer should be dealing with.
0: Right, right. It's also too complicated, they don't care.
1: Drastically too complicated.
0: So, okay. So you guys are basically saying, here's this, this,
1: yeah, it's, it's, oh, yeah, you're right. By the way, and complicated, it's it's worth like cappuccinos to the individual, right? So you got to roll
0: it up to make it useful. Something like that. Some terms that they actually care about. So, so you guys are coming through with software and saying, we're going to align the incentives in this system. I I think I'm starting to picture it now that for this whole conversation, I'm starting to get it, uh, get it fully, which is the point of this podcast. (laughs) Can, can you talk about a couple of different terms? So what is a virtual power plant? And you've talked about it a bunch. I know what you're talking about. But it's I don't similar know that- to an aggregator in that it's a big big idea.
1: So if you install insulation, you're building a virtual power plant. If you put controls on a building, you're building a virtual power plant. If you replace HVAC systems or install storage or solar behind meters, you're building a virtual power plant. If you send someone an email and they change their behavior to, for some event, you're building a virtual power plant. If you're doing E or DR, it's all virtual power plant. We don't care. So, what you're, it's, it's really just a way to talk, an integrated way to talk about all this stuff. So, we stopped putting it in silos. First, it was a portfolio of buildings in a place affecting the grid in some way, right? And uh, how you get there is beside the point. It's that you've aggregated this this resource, it's reliable, we can measure its impact. It's a virtual power plant.
0: I can plug a bunch of interval meters in, you can do your calculations in your software, and there's some sort of power being.
1: Well, what we're doing is we're measuring the change, right? Like so
0: change virtual
1: power plant, like this, this aggregation of 500 buildings that have my controls and whatever are responding either to a long-term system, like, Hey, we want you to reduce. So we don't have to build that distribution system or there's no grid event mm-hmm. that's responding like a power plant, but yeah. it's virtual and it's flexibility. So it doesn't have, you know, it's not exporting necessarily. It could, mm-hmm. um, but you're responding to this signal and it's equivalent too, right? Like instead of building a power plant, we're deploying virtual power plants that do the same thing because producing electrons and using less of them has the same impact. Just happens to be producing less of them tends to be cheaper, has no GHG impact and also has a co-benefit, which is that it actually helps customers because you get better buildings too, not just grid scale investments.
0: Totally. Okay, so that's I think that's a good intro to VPPs for everyone that does, hasn't heard. What about grid interactive buildings? So what, what what about that concept?
1: You know, if you ask our buddies at DOE, who we love because they've funded a lot of our work, we have a different opinion. Like, you know, there's one aspect that there's one school of thought that says this is kind of a, I have a we have a very specific opinion about this that okay. um, we need every building and every device in the building to be automatically controlled, and some utility or somebody in the middle is going to control it all remotely. Okay. We think that's all true, like you know, but we just are not as diabolical about it. In that, like we think control is going to come from the aggregator, like okay. the DERM system, the control system it isn't going to be some centralized. We're not going to repl- like utilities. We think are distributing, not you know, distributed resources are not then going to be centralized to control by you know. I'm not going to let the utility control my smart toaster oven. You know? Right. Right. And then I need. I want that control. I'm going to contract with somebody to control it but it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all um and so we think we are absolutely doing grid interactive buildings we think we send a price signal to an aggregator that enables those buildings to react to the grid in whatever way makes the most sense for customers that they'll actually buy and we think there's going to be lots of different ways that's going to look
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that's the alternative view to like everyone's going to use this doe standard and you know pge is going to control all my stuff right right i think it's wholly unreasonable i mean many of these utilities don't even know where their meters actually are like I mean, I don't know. I'm going, I'm doing a lot of this work in my own house and it's like a bespoke nightmare for me to do it in my own house. Right. With five contractors licenses. Like
0: I, you know. <laughs> okay. So there's gonna be aggregators that are, are gonna basically design the grid interaction for their customers and that they're gonna have an agreement with their customers that there's trust involved in what's happening. And I'm gonna pick them. That. They're
1: not gonna afford like, you know, I use Ohm Connect, for example. Okay.
0: Fair, fair warning, I'm an advisor
1: too, but like I connect, you know, slowly, but surely I've been connecting shit to controllers and they'll turn them off for me during grid events. But then I was like, I don't want you to, you know, I don't know. But then I decided I don't want you to turn that thing off. So I have control over it. Like, I don't know, it's mine. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I believe, we believe fundamentally that the, the meter is the cusp, right? On one side of the meter is the grid. The mm-hmm. meter is the grid asset. That's where all the telemetry comes from. And then everything behind the building, like I'm pretty sure I own all the shit in my house. Yeah. Okay, that I, you know, we don't think the grid extends into the house or into the building. And we yeah. think the utility monopoly has to have an edge also. Like, are we going to let utilities control transportation, heating and cooling of all buildings, lighting, uh, right. refrigeration, like, where does that, like, where does the monopoly end given everything runs on energy? Are they just allowed to control the economy? Yeah, and that sounds hyperbolic, but
0: like, where's the edge? So with this GEB concept, do you picture there being multiple aggregators that serve different buildings? So each building having multiple aggregators, like do I need an aggregator for my electric vehicle charging systems and then my aggregator for my HVAC?
1: It depends what the measurement barrier is. Some things we can isolate, but in general we think like you will, at your master meter, have an aggregator that you'll choose to work with. Uh They may subcontract with others because how you break the savings out between devices is kind of a contractual agreement. Um, things that have meters on them, you know, car charging or solar can be isolated. We can take that out of the equation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a little bit of a sloppy answer. There's going to be, I think, different iterations of it.
0: Okay. Got it. Cool. All right. So as we kind of wrap this up, this has been super helpful for me. Um, I want to ask you about your your answer to my favorite question. Uh, so I always do one question, ask everyone the same question. So my question for this year is what's the number one thing you think needs to change to unlock smart buildings? And you can define smart buildings however you want. Uh, You have a different perspective than most people on the podcast, but what's the number one thing you think needs to change to just sort of blow things up? Boy,
1: there are so many fun barriers to talk about here between uh, access to large scale capital and competitive markets. And um, I guess the, the fundamental thing that I believe we need to put in place is market access and competitive market access, right? That um, I believe businesses, whether it's the customer in the building or the aggregator figuring out how to invest millions of dollars to build a business model and deploy it, um, respond to something called money and other things too, but we have to align incentives around what makes money, what is valuable. And so, you know, it's pretty consistent what we've been talking about here, but I think having a price signal that makes doing good for the grid and the climate Outside of the four walls of that building is the critical thing that aligns interests. So that again, producing stuff that actually works becomes a source of profit to the market and a better deal to the customer. And then everything flows from there, right?
0: Yeah. So basically a cash flow stream that everyone agrees upon the calculations like we've been talking about that then creates a marketplace around that cash flow so
1: stream. And then under that, there's a in a competitive market, we're not going to pick the winners and make more monopolies and then. Everyone's competing on the right grounds to go out and figure out how to build business models and deliver valuable solutions that actually work. And if they do that, they're going to make more money and grow. Customers are going to be happy.
0: We're going to scale. Love it. Love it. Cool. So last question, what are you excited about for 2021?
1: Well, I'm no longer running around trying to convince utilities to give us 100 grand so we can prove they have a problem. Um, (laughs) We have a new administration coming in, which isn't going to hurt either, by the way, but um, this is the year of the virtual power plant. We are decarbonizing rapidly in many places now, um, even prior to our new administration that just uh, an hour or so ago happened. So I think we're in a quickening. And when I say like we don't have to convince utilities they have a problem anymore, I think there's, you know, things move very slow until they don't. And I think we're approaching uh, an inflection point where, you know, this is, we're not just going to write reports about barriers and you know, run $6 million pilot programs, but things are going to start going faster and get bigger quickly,
0: hopefully. Love it. All right. That's a great place to, to kind of sign off. Thanks, Matt. I want to get an update from you at some point on the, this inflection point, uh, but thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for educating us.
1: Sounds good. Thank you.
0: All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart buildings industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.